The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine containing topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month... While ACB Reports is in Orlando, Florida, gathering new program material from the annual convention of the American Council of the Blind, our program for July 2009 takes you back to last year's convention in Louisville, Kentucky. That's where many people had the chance to meet Gene Parker. Regular listeners to Morning Edition on National Public Radio have often heard her voice reporting from Pune, India. She is a blind American journalist who began living and working in India several years ago. Here is her presentation about living and working in this unique environment. Thank you. I want to thank ACB and Mitch for making it possible for me to be here and to speak and to visit the convention. I want to begin by describing India. There are many Indias. There's the what's called the India Shining, with 9% annual growth, with call centers. Yes, I know about Dell. <laughs> the information technology program developers, the outsourcing, the back office processing, the exploding middle class, the departmental stores, the shopping malls. There's the other India, known as Bharat, with 11% inflation, abject poverty, over 50% illiteracy, the filth, the overcrowding, the abysmal healthcare system, no system really, the land practices based on feudal traditions of land ownership, the largest slums in the world, and farmers who find it more attractive to commit suicide than to face their indebtedness. India is a land of contrasts. It has the best and the worst of everything. And most of the stereotypes you've heard about India are based in some way in truth, to some extent at least. It's a modern society that exists alongside ancient beliefs and rituals. Someone once described an encounter with a person in India that when you have an encounter, you have to determine what century that person is living in. All of the centuries often do exist in the same family. You'll have an aerospace engineer whose brother is a village farmer in a remote part of India where nothing has changed in thousands of years. Many people find it shocking. Many people find it uncomfortable, dirty, and disgusting. Others go for spiritual enlightenment, but I admit to being too busy and too practical for that. And some people find it simply too strange and too objectionable to comprehend and vow never to return. It was into this context I came almost seven years ago as a radio journalist and began pitching stories. All of this I have described to you so far provides an endless tapestry to someone who has always been curious to investigate and report on topics. I have always had an endless fascination in my travels with places where the modern world and the ancient world coexist. 
often with a lot of tension and conflict, but also in harmonious acceptance of the advantages and drawbacks of each. Let me explain my job before I go any further. I work as a, a foreign correspondent. I work for many news agencies. I work for NPR. I work for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, Radio Netherlands, Marketplace, Voice of America, and others. And increasingly, a number of domestic clients, which is a great privilege to me. It means they trust my judgment. It means they trust my ability to write stories that are acceptable to a domestic audience. I begin every day by reading the news to see if there are spots to be done for NPR for Marketplace because I like to file them by one o'clock in the afternoon so that they're on the morning newscast. Then I work on my features and documentaries and I, I generally have about four or five stories of some kind or another in various stages of development or production. The accessibility tools I use are JAWS for Windows. I use a Braille light. I use SoundForge with the Snowman scripts, and you guys that use SoundForge, I know there are a lot of people here who do, will understand what I'm talking about. For me, Braille is a must for reading copy and for taking notes. Thanks. Indeed, could not do my job without it. I have chosen to use a high-end laptop instead of a PC to do my work. I, in fact, use a PC to back up my work and as a secondary system. But I can carry a, a basic studio with computer, mics, external sound card. I can carry all of that in a backsack, and that has been a very important thing to be able to do in the field on location. I will say, however, that the technology which is made for us is very delicate. And uh, I do find problems with shock and dust and heat and humidity. Um, if any of the vendors uh, want to give me some piece of technology for a durability test, I would be glad to <laughs> assist. I want to explain the advantages to living in India as a blind person. And, and by doing so, I want to illustrate how I've modified things to meet my needs, both as a blind person and as a journalist. I'm going to start out with the good news, and then I'll talk about the many challenges. First and foremost, for a blind person, India is a place where you can live without a car. In fact, if you rent a car in India, by definition, it comes with a driver. You cannot rent a vehicle without a driver. So when I write a budget for a story, when I'm proposing a story to an editor and I write a budget and it says car rental or transportation, that means that the car comes with a driver and blindness or special transport never enters the equation. At that point anyway. This factor alone makes it possible for me to do this job in ways that could not be done in America. And I have to tell you, that was a big surprise to me. India is a class-defined society. Everyone of my profession and professional class, most people have a personal assistant. And in fact, you're considered very odd in many instances if you go somewhere without your personal assistant. What that means is that as a blind person, if I want to take somebody with me for some practical reason, 
It's not at all unusual for me to bring somebody along. Things are automatically delivered. Food, medicine, everything. Anything you want delivered can be at your door. You don't have to waste time going around. Our clothes are tailored for us. You can either have the tailor come, come home or you can go and see the tailor. There are ready-made clothes now uh, also. That was not the case when I first went to India. But um, the tailor remains cheaper and much more creative. We have wonderful fresh fruits and vegetables. You can get anything fixed. You can get anything made. We can buy appliances that have knobs and levers. <laughs> because half the population is illiterate. Touch screens don't work for a lot of people. We have the best medical care in the world, if you can pay for it. Many social situations lend themselves to accessibility for a blind person. For example, if you need a ride somewhere, it's not at all considered unusual. And in fact, other people need rides somewhere too. Most people don't own vehicles and don't drive, still. Things are often done in a group. And so if you uh, feel more comfortable for some reason doing something in a group, it's not at all considered unusual. In fact, there are people who never, ever travel alone. And those are people who are fully sighted, who are very educated, but they choose not to travel alone. It's a society where the group takes precedent over the individual. That can be a drawback as well. Most people of a certain income level and professional class have domestic servants. It's considered very odd and very selfish if you don't. Laundry and other household tasks are done by hand. They take a lot of time. And for people who are working to take the time to do that is, is not practical. It's expected that at a certain income level, you would employ one or several people for domestic work. For a blind person, this works best if you already know you can do these tasks yourself. And that way you can keep your power and autonomy. You never want to let people know that you're depending on them to do something that you can't do. They'll take advantage. So my role in the household is more as a manager. It's important to maintain mobility skills. Often I uh, take a trip to Bombay on my own purposely by myself in order not to lose the edge. And let me tell you that if you can navigate the Bombay local trains, you can navigate anything. <laughs> in this part of the world, in, in uh, Asia and Africa and, and uh, Latin America even, Journalists employ fixers, people who translate, people who make appointments, people who uh, act as guides, people who interpret the culture. For me, these people often also act as guides. I usually like to hire local writers who are good at descriptive language, and I tell them that I want you to take notes and tell me everything that goes on that's visual. Everything from the clothing they're wearing, the facial expressions, the body language, all the nonverbals. Because there's always a visual subtext to a story. One of the challenges I, I face as a radio producer is that we must describe the visuals. And describing them accurately 
is absolutely necessary. Interpreting the culture, India is a diverse country. Many people think that everything in India is the same. It's not. It's an extremely diverse country. And what goes on in uh, the state of Rajasthan might be very different than what goes on in the state of Kerala for a different reason. And they do other practical things as well, especially if you're coming from out of state or out of the country. It's important that I make sure they keep their biases out of the picture. It's important that I test their consistency, make sure there's nothing that they're saying that's inconsistent with either my experience or the experience of others. And if I have a question, I fire them directly and hire somebody else. That's important to my credibility and also to the story. Okay, here's the bad news, the disadvantages. The unmitigated noise both as a radio producer and as a blind person, the unmitigated noise, street noise, traffic noise, construction noise, people shouting on their mobiles, ringtones, um, everybody honking their horns. It's awful. The street is very chaotic, even in Bombay where they actually have um, traffic laws that are obeyed and everything. <laughs> The street is very chaotic. Everybody is together. Trucks, buses, rickshaws, dogs, pedestrians, push carts selling things, bullock carts, cows. Yes, there are cows in the street. The occasional elephant. Cars, jeeps, motorbikes, bicycles, all blowing their horns at the same time. The roads are very narrow, and there are usually no footpaths or sidewalks and in most places, very few traffic signals. So there's a lot of potential danger in this chaos, but it also provides an opportunity, is somewhat of an equalizer. Everyone needs help crossing the street, not just blind people. <laughs> and there are some places where I've been where people gather together to cross the street together en masse to become larger than the oncoming vehicles. Yeah, but in, in New York City, the traffic lights work. And they have them. Stop commenting. Ignorance is a big problem. In the countryside, blindness is often considered uh, a result of possession or curses of a religious nature. It requires a lot of patience to remember that most blind people who are visible in Indian society are sitting in the roadside begging for money. I know because I trip over them when I go out. Electricity is unreliable. Sometimes water is unreliable or contaminated. Sometimes there are insurgents that target trains and buses. Sometimes they block the roads and when you're trying to get somewhere and there's some demonstration or other going on, you can't get where you're going on time or at all. We have a mobile network which is so overloaded, sometimes it barely functions. And there's a special category for corruption. It deserves a special place in the list of problems in India. It exists from top to bottom of the society, and it affects everything you do. What you get done is directly based on who you know, 
It's, it's based on relationships. It's a relationship society. There is no formal welfare system. The family is the social support. The barriers I face as a journalist are multiple. I'm going to name some of them. I'm a foreigner. I'm a female. I have a disability. I have an unpopular national origin, age, marital status, race, language, economic class, caste, religion. Some of these can be minimized, but not entirely by any means. Some of them cancel out each other. And when someone is uncomfortable with me, it could be for any number or several reasons. I don't bother to worry about why. It's not worth it. But if I had to pick one that's the most problematic, I would say the prejudice against my uh, being a foreigner is the most problematic. Not blindness, but being a foreigner. That creates some reporting advantages and also some problems. It cuts both ways. Being a foreigner, sometimes people won't talk, especially government people and, you know, low-level folks, low-level government people. But some people think that I won't judge them so harshly for their decisions and their, uh, the, their way of living, and so uh, they will talk to me much, much more freely than they would speak with an Indian journalist. And that's a consistent experience of foreign journalists in India. This is especially true when it comes to caste or class issues. In the scheme of things, blindness is not usually an issue. On the other hand, a lot of the people I deal with are in such distress that they don't even notice. That was true especially after the tsunami, where people were you know, hallucinating and really in very, very bad psychological shape. Okay, getting around. Finding addresses isn't an easy thing. There are no numbers. Streets have no names except for the main roads. The rest is uh, a maze, a labyrinth of alleys and lanes and passageways. And so you have to know the person that you're looking for. You have to uh, have, have had an, uh, some sort of an introduction. You have to take somebody who knows that person who can find them. I'm going to speak about this a little later when I talk about editors. I want you to you know, go back and find the guy to restate what he already stated. I talked about fighting and conflict in, in India. It is a real problem. Protests, religious marches, blocking the roads. In the monsoon, there's all manner of problems due to flooding, heavy rain, um, roads, railway tracks being washed out, things are delayed. It's a real problem. But from a purely journalistic side, putting aside all of the humanitarian woes, the turmoil, the conflict, the tragedy provides a never-ending supply of stories. And as an independent journalist, our ability to make a living, unfortunately, is directly connected to people's tragedy and misery. I don't feel good about it, but it's a fact. When I began working in India, I found that because the Radio industry had largely been owned by the state. There was no private radio then, there is now. 
My skills were in demand as an experienced radio producer. I found I could teach. Suddenly my skills were in demand. People were calling me up, can you come and do this, can you come and do that? I found I was one of the few people who had practical experience in both amateur radio and also in community radio. And this has been very important in the planning and discussions on disaster management after the tsunami. Combining community radio and ham radio to make an effective community-operated network for warning and relief and search and rescue is essential in a country like India. The amount of death and destruction after the 2004 tsunami was totally avoidable. It never should have happened. My so-called break came when I was asked by a US-based program to report on the tsunami, and no, I didn't know if I could do it. Fear of the unknown is one of the things I want to talk with you about. I had reported on the Central American civil wars. I had reported on other sensitive issues. I had not reported on anything of this scale, the scale of destruction and death of the tsunami, and I don't know that anyone had. I remember sitting in what had been a house previous to the tsunami, and uh, people, uh, people generally uh, sit in a group on the floor, you know, to discuss things, and so we were discussing things. And I had my microphones and all, and recording people. And along came the only chicken they had left and proceeded to hop up on my head and would not get off. Now, you know, people were crying. People were very sad about they, there were still a lot of people missing from that village. And there was just this dead silence and nobody knew what to do. <laughs> and he sat there and he sat there and his claws were so sharp. <laughs> Finally, he got off. <laughs> but funny things do happen. <laughs> that brings up a, another issue as a blind journalist, particularly radio. People in villages especially tell stories in groups. And this is true throughout the world. What that creates for a blind journalist, though, is uh, difficulties in microphone placement and, um, if I could say, traffic control. One of the things I have my fixers do if we're going to the countryside is I make sure to tell them this is going to happen. And so they know how to tell people one at a time, one at a time. And remember, this is a society where things happen in groups. They don't happen necessarily uh, to the individual. Okay, I want to talk about editors. Some editors know I'm blind. I certainly don't hide it, but I don't advertise it either. Any kind of a discerning Google search would, would reveal the fact, but mostly it's irrelevant. Most of the editors I work with I've never met and will never meet. And it's not that I'm hiding the fact. If it comes up as in the uh, course of developing a story, I, I would certainly say to them, um, by the way, I'm blind. What you're asking me to do is probably, possibly not going to work for this story. How about doing it this way? And they generally say, oh, okay, fine. I don't have to prove to them that I can do the job because the job is already done. When we get to the editing stage, all the field work has been done, all of the tape gathering has been done, over, done, complete. One hurdle I do face with editors, though, is if they want to use some visual, inaccessible editing software, 
you know, that they just got at a conference and they want everybody to use it. <laughs> You've heard the story. And I just have to tell them, no, nope, I'm blind, I use a screen reader, let's do it this way, please. Yeah, and mostly they just say, cool, okay, no problem. The job is done, they can't say anything about it. Their priority is to get the story. Here's a frustration that's not related to blindness, and that is editors who have not worked in the developing world, they don't understand how things work, and they don't understand how things don't work, how things operate, and they question things like expenses, lack of receipts. Now, if I have to pay some fellow a bribe to get somewhere, I'm by God not going to have a receipt. Or they want me to go back and find some fellow who said something on tape and there was some problem with it, the fellow doesn't have an address and there's no mobile number and there's nobody knows where he is anymore and et cetera and et cetera. Come on. Sometimes you just can't go and find people like that. I get around by rickshaw, mostly, or motorcycles. I own a couple of them. I still hear my father yelling at me about riding a motorcycle. Train, bus, jeep, car, occasionally bullet cart on foot, whatever gets the job done. Biggest problem in, in uh, dealing with rickshaws is if I get a Marathi-speaking driver, I don't speak Marathi, I know Hindi, if I get a Marathi-speaking uh, rickshaw driver who can't read, then we have a problem because uh, that's not someone who can read signs, and so then we're, we're back to landmarks and talking about things in, in terms of landmarks, and that can be a bit difficult. I always go out with a charged mobile. So if I get stuck somewhere, something happens, you know, some problem, I can call someone to interpret. As of this year, we have talking GPS in India. This is going to be very nice for us because you could put a, a destination point on a gatepost or something and you can tell where you are and you can tell if you're at the uh, correct train stop or the correct bus stop or whatever. There are no such things as uh, stop announcements or anything like that. You're lucky if the bus stops at all. Mostly the buses have pause mode. <laughs> Amid all of the problems that India has, all of the oppression, all of the convulsions in the society, I've had the opportunity to work with some really brave and fearless, smart, committed people. And it's an honor and a privilege to have worked with them and I wouldn't give it up for the world. Thanks. That was blind American journalist Gene Parker recorded at the National Convention of the American Council of the Blind in July of 2008. Listen next month for the first of many reports from this year's Convention of the American Council of the Blind from Orlando, Florida. You've been listening to ACB Reports, heard on radio information services nationwide on side four of the Braille Forum cassette edition and throughout the world on acbradio.org. ACB Reports is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Send suggestions and comments about this program to reports at acbradio.org. Contact the American Council of the Blind online at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another ACB Reports.